I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, which we are styling today a show about guns in America. This is one of our signature debate shows, and today we are going to take a deep dive into one of the most divisive issues in America, guns. While the majority of gun owners are responsible, we are also all too familiar with the tragedies involving firearms. And we are going to have a thoughtful, fact-based conversation today to help get you educated on what's real and what's not, and what are, if any, gun reforms that could actually help prevent future mass shootings, uh, or in particular, teenagers or people who are not mentally well from getting their hands on guns and using them against innocent victims. We're going to talk about whether there are real solutions that we as a nation can agree on. We have brought together two of the best minds on gun rights and gun control. Both men have broken countless stories while covering the gun beat. Stephen Gutowski is founder of The Reload and Mike Spees is a senior writer for The Trace. Stephen and Mike, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Megan. All right. So, Stephen, you are um, the reload is I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say pro gun exactly, but just for the audience to understand, Stephen, you're more sort of on the pro gun and um, Mike, you're more on sort of the gun control uh, beat and um, focused on what measures we could take to sort of roll back some of the problems we've been seeing. Um, so let's just kick it off with this. Uh, the, some stats for the audience. We, according to what I read, we had more than 45,000 people shot to death in America in 2020. Um, We had a spike in violence in 2021. And the vast majority of of those gun deaths were suicide. Uh, So it's not all homicide, but a fair amount of homicide, too. And America is the biggest gun country in the world. And um, in particular, what gets people talking about it is the mass shootings. Right. Like what we saw in Michigan, this kid, Ethan Crumbly, going into the school and shooting uh, up, you know, other teenagers. His parents have now been arrested. It's a fascinating case. Um, but we also see it when innocent civilians or police officers are shot to death by people who had no business having guns or the kind of gun that they had. And that's where I'll kick it off, because here in New York uh, overnight, the second police officer died who was shot uh, by that 44 year old suspect. He also died. The suspect has died since. But these cops were called to this house in Harlem by the suspect's mom. They were walking down the hallway to go into his room and see what was wrong. And he came out. They they didn't stand a chance. He came out guns blazing, shot the cops, uh, both of whom are now dead. One was 22. Uh, He was shot and killed. And now we have and his name, by the way, was Jason Rivera. And then there's Wilbert Mora, 
just 27. It's so awful. It's just so awful. And Stephen, I'll start with you as somebody who is used to sort of defending gun rights. A lot of people looked at that modification he had on his gun, which I understand was not lawful. I don't know that that was the reason the cops died. You know, he could have shot him just without that modification. But should that guy have had a gun, career criminal? And is there a gun law that could have prevented it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack with a situation like that with domestic violence call that leads to, uh, you know, the death of, of law enforcement officers is a horrific tragedy. And obviously, I think most people would question, well, how could this happen? How can we prevent this going forward? And there, there are a number of ways. I mean, oftentimes in situations like that, <clears throat> what you'll find, and, and this is true for uh, many mass shootings as well, uh, some of the most famous ones that we know, uh, the shooter was prohibited. They, they weren't legally allowed to own guns in the mm-hmm. first place due to their either mental health history or their uh, criminal history. Uh, such as in this case. And, um, you know, the question is, how do you keep somebody who is already prohibited from owning guns in under federal law, so in the entire country, from obtaining them? And that's where a lot of the uh, controversy comes in, because, you know, there's there's different proposals on uh, that range from better enforcement. Right, but let me, let me of, just stop you there. Let me just stop you. Yeah. Forgive my, my interruption, but I want to make sure we all stay on same page. So he should not, this 44-year-old man now dead, the shooter, mm-hmm. should not have had a gun. Why? Well, he had a criminal history that uh, included uh, either a felony conviction or uh, misdemeanor domestic violence conviction, uh, then he, he shouldn't have been able to obtain it, or at least he wouldn't legally have been able to possess the gun mm-hmm. uh, in the first place. So we see it all the time, though, with criminals. We see it all the time with criminals who commit domestic violence or some other crime, some other felony. They get out of jail. It seems very easy. It seems very easy for them to get a gun. Am I wrong? No. I mean, it can be very easy for uh, people who are prohibited, people who are are known criminals, to obtain guns illegally outside of uh, the current system that we have in place to buy guns. Uh, you know, through through licensed dealers with background you know, checks involved. Uh, you know, there's obviously proposals to expand that system to private sales as well. That's where a lot of the controversy comes in with the uh, so-called universal background checks, because the idea there is that uh, private sales should also have to go through uh, the background check system like sales from licensed dealers do. Although, of course, we're, in this case, you're talking about New York, which has a law like that in place already. And obviously, a lot of criminals just don't comply with it. And That's the they problem. sell guns knowingly. <laughs> That's the problem. That and this illegal. gets right to the heart of it right off the top, right? So it's like, Mike, the, <laughs> we could, we do have tough gun laws in New York City. Um, and yet, there was this guy sitting with this gun with this unlawful modifier on it. Again, I don't think it wasn't the modifier that yeah. led to the death of the cops. A regular sure. old gun could have killed these cops just as easily. But The point is just how easy it is, despite the fact this is a career criminal sitting there with the gun. You I don't know. I'd love a real solution. I would. I'm not I'm so open minded on this issue. I've been the victim of a crime and I've and so I appreciate guns with the good guys who protect us. But I have three kids and I certainly worry about, you know, school shootings and the other stuff, too. So I'd love to see a gun reform that could actually stop the bad guys from getting the guns. But I, we, we passed every single one of the gun reforms Joe Biden's pushing right now. That guy still would have had this gun. 
Yeah, I th think the problem across the board in America is that we're pretty weak on accountability measures, which is what fuels the illegal gun market. So, for example, one thing, and this in some ways also in a, in a different way relates back to the, the Michigan shooting that you were talking about, is we have we have pretty poor storage laws and regulation, especially when it comes to uh, firearms dealers. For example, it is as as investigations have shown that the trace is done. Um, there's no real requirement in federally licensed firearm dealers or places that sell guns to store them in such a way that they're not easily accessible, which is why these like these smash and grab situations where people basically just drive a car through the front door and take a hammer and break glass uh, and remove all the weapons and run out or, or saw a hole through the ceiling and drop in and take all the guns like that's um, it's a big it's a it's a it's a it's a gaping hole in our system that allows legal guns to be trafficked into an illegal market. Um, and I think until we're a lot more serious about regulating gun sellers, that's going to continue to be the pipeline. And how obviously the other issue, happen? which we have. How, how, how frequent an event is that, Mike, where, where people are doing this? We've been following the smashing grab of the Gucci bags. But how right. often does that happen with respect to the guns? Well, I wish I could give you like a, a good statistic on that. I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty, fr I mean, I think they are, they're recognized as pretty easy targets and definitely, you know, per the investigation that I was referencing, we have quite a lot of video showing the ease with which people were able to break into gun shops and steal a ton of weapons. Mm. Um, so I guess, here, go ahead. Wait, let him well, jump I just want to yeah, make a, a quick point here. Yeah. Uh, these are, this is certainly a, a phenomenon that happens. This is one way that criminals get their guns. Mike's correct on that point. But I, I would sort of uh, question the idea that it's easy because given the tactics that are often employed, like as Mike suggested there, literally crashing cars through buildings to get to the guns. I don't know what, you know, th that that adding an extra safe after you're willing to knock down the, the wall of a building to get to the guns is going to be much more of a deterrent uh, in, in preventing well, these sorts of things. One tactic. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. I don't mean it. I mean, I'm, maybe that, you know, referencing the car is sort of an extreme example. There are myriad ways in which people break into all manner of facilities, including gun shops. Um, I, you know, it's, 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 it is, I mean, there's obvious, there's, there's never like a panacea. But in, in this case, I think another issue, right, when we're talking about like, how did this person get the gun? Uh, another issue is we don't trace data is not publicly available per the law, right, Stephen? So that's something that we can't, and, and uh, what do you mean? There are, re there are the argument for, meaning like in, it, we, we, until I believe was it like the 1980s or 1986, it used, used to be able, it, it was, the ATF was required to make trace data on guns public. So, which is to say that the public could assess uh, or, or could see where like a where where a particular gun came from that showed up mm -hmm. in a crime is that right Stephen? some some yeah am I, I mean, am I getting it, this right right yeah that, that's correct yeah. there used to be uh more more granular data on exactly what stores sold mm -hmm. you know how many guns that ended up being traced by the atf of course obviously the industry uh counterpoint to this and the reason that it's not done anymore is because uh it doesn't imply necessarily that the the stores are doing anything you know illegal or wrong just because uh, some of the guns eventually end up years oh, later sure. using, using crimes. This, is, the, this the, became the one, a controversial thing. And that, you know, because yeah. basically just any gun store that was near a city would be labeled a, a bad apple 
gun dealer. And that, that was one of the reasons that that happened. The, the only reason I point to it is it just makes it more difficult to assess like trafficking patterns, which is to say it's not as if the ATF can't do it itself. But and we all know that federal agencies are usually fairly strapped and like as, as a pro public investigation recently showed with the EPA. They're not they're not necessarily that great at, at utilizing their own data, but sometimes enterprising journalists uh, such as yourself or many others, given the opportunity to do that, you know, could potentially add an extra layer of protection or at least transparency when it comes to some of the questions that we're dealing with right now. What does it say? I guess I think it's I think, you know, when it comes to a useful proposal, um, accountability seems to always be the best deterrent in my in my personal opinion so you know when it comes to universal background checks which are far from a panacea i would totally agree with that and are sort of better than nothing but don't even necessarily account for the most important like factors right, let's, stop. let's go through it let's go through it. let's have a let's have an easy sure. to understand discussion on the things that sure. are being proposed and that get kicked around and that, you know, we know that Joe Biden wants. Um, he definitely wants oh. universal or uniform background checks. Um, so what does that mean? Right. Don't don't we already have universal background checks? Um, I don't know if you can call them universal, but background checks in most of the states, Stephen. Yes. Uh, so under federal law, what the way it works is there's a specific system that was built for commercial gun dealers. And so if you want to sell guns commercially, if you want to make a business out of selling firearms, you have to obtain a federal license from the federal government. And if you're selling a gun to somebody who is not similarly licensed, then you have to perform a background check. That's how the system was designed to work. It specifically targets commercial sales and does not regulate non-commercial sales. So used gun sales by just regular people who aren't selling their guns to make a profit or ha build a business around that. So, and so just to give a practical example of that. So if mm -hmm. I walk into a gun store in Connecticut, yeah. uh, where I live now, and I say I want to buy a gun, they would do a background check on me. Um, but if I went to my neighbor who I knew had guns and said, can I buy your handgun from you, your pistol? She could sell it to me and I wouldn't have to go through any sort of a check and it would be a lawful sale. Well, not in Connecticut, because they have state laws that deal with this as well, on top of the okay. federal regulations. But okay. uh, in Virginia, where I live, well, sorry, no, Virginia also just recently passed this. But Pennsylvania, where I'm from, that would be the case. Yes, you, if you're within state limits, if you want to buy a handgun, now handguns have also added regulations on top of them. You can't buy them across state lines without going through a licensed dealer first, even used guns. So there's a lot of sort of complication that goes into this stuff. But your example would be accurate in a state that doesn't have a universal background check law in place, which is, to be clear, the vast majority of states in the United States. So the vast majority um, of states would require a background check even in a private not, sale? Would not. Yeah, would not. Would not yeah. It's just a commercial sale. OK, and when they yes. do the background check on me, what are they mainly looking for, whether I've committed a crime or I'm on some sort of a, you know, if it's a state that has a red flag law, I've been red flagged for some mental deficiency or risk. Yeah. So under the federal system, what they're looking for is whether or not you've committed a felony. So if, uh, a crime that's punishable by uh, over a year in prison uh, or a domestic violence misdemeanor. And there's we can talk about this later, but there's some 
uh, controversy over what exactly constitutes a domestic violence misdemeanor. People want to change the definition there. Uh, or if you've been adjudicated mentally ill as a threat to yourself or others, uh, through which is really a, a legal process as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are the main prohibited what if I What if I were adjudicated mentally ill five years ago, and but now I'm fine, you know, because you see this like a young man who, when he hits 20, has mm-hmm. a schizophrenic outbreak. He's showing signs of being threatening. And so let's say he gets a two month commitment and that's that's been documented. But now it's five years later. He's 25. He hasn't had any other issues. Would that prevent him from getting a gun? It would, unless he would. has had his rights restored in some way, which is a process you can go through. It's pretty arduous, but would it, it's possible. Would it prevent him forever? Yes. Yeah. Oh, forever more. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, I, so that, that is not one area in which I am pro-gun at all. I feel like if you've shown signs of having, especially one of the mental, Ill, mental illnesses that we know are often linked to gun crimes, you are one of the few who's not going to get a gun. And I mean, as a country with over 400 million guns, sorry, not everyone can have one. Certain things preclude you. And those people are on the list as far as I'm concerned. Um, OK, so that's that's the background check. So how many states then you, you tell me, Mike, how many states um, are more like Pennsylvania, where it's like, well, the feds can do what they want. But if you want to have a private sale inside of our state, go for it. We don't need any background check for you. I don't have the number on hand, but but as we were saying, it's definitely the majority. And I think in states that have tried, you know, more purplish states like Nevada that have, well, for instance, Nevada is a good example, right? In the wake of that horrible mass shooting there uh, at the at the music festival, they, through a ballot measure, I believe, uh, they, the, the, the citizens of the state of Nevada um, passed a background check law, and then the attorney general refused to enforce it. By arguing uh, that privates, like by, it was effectively unenforceable. You couldn't. How could you? How could you enforce the law? Like how could you? How could you require people to conduct background checks if they're not, um, if they if they're not, if they're not licensed stewards? Right. Like how would my um, neighbor who I love be saved? Like what dead database would she be looking at to figure out whether I was a criminal or had a mental health issue? Well, so well, the, way guess, the the way most ahead, of yeah. these work, way most of these state laws work, and I. If I remember correctly, I believe there's only eight states. Actually, it's, it's probably more like, I think it's like 10 now that have passed universal background checks uh, at the yeah, state level. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's somewhere around. It's not It's not a big majority, although they are. They do tend to be very large population states like California, New York, Massachusetts. You know, So it's a lot of people live under this sort of regulation already. But the way it usually works is they require you to go to... Uh, a, a gun store, go to an, a licensed dealer in order to sell the gun to the, the private party. And, and one of the common criticisms of this policy is that it's basically unenforceable. There's how would law enforcement know if you ever did that, right? I mean, unless unless the gun later on shows up in yes. some other crime, well, that's maybe the they thing. can trace it back to this. But, but that's well, one of the main criticisms that it's basically unenforceable. Well, that's and that, what I was going to say is I think the way there it, that that will always be a problem so i think the only thing you can do to mitigate that issue is to build in an accountability measure which is to say like you know it's a back end thing but if you don't do a background check and you sell a gun to someone through a private transfer then they go and commit a crime with it then you can be held responsible for it which is obviously it would be preferable to prevent that in the first place but it's also like a i mean it's a deterrent and as long as you make it clear 
that that's built into the law, that seems like the old, that seems like at least a, a potential way to address the issue that's mm. reasonable. Well, there's yeah. also uh, obviously the concern that the other way of enforcing universal background check laws is through a registry of guns, uh, which is how some of these states do uh, enforce this. And, sure. um, and obviously that leads to a lot of concern over uh, gun confiscation down the line, because if there's a registry, uh, it makes it easier to, to confiscate the guns, um, as you're actually seeing right now in Canada, um, where they have uh, recently banned the possession of uh, AR-15s and similar rifles, uh, and they have a registry of who owns those guns. So it'll once that goes into effect uh, in April, it'll be interesting to see from certainly from down here in the States how that plays out. Oh my gosh, how do you like to be the guy who has to go <clears throat> seize the AR-15s from the gun owners who love them? And I actually, I'm dying to talk to you about AR-15s because they, it's a gun that's been very maligned. It's, it's, it's used in a lot of these mass shootings. Um, but is it really any different from a semi-automatic pistol uh, that you'd see any place in, you know, in most women's handbags in Texas, right? Uh, we're going to pick it up there right after this break. And we've got a bit of breaking news to bring to you when we come back. Don't don't go away. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Stephen and Mike are back with me. But first, before we get back to them, let me bring you the breaking news. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer of the U.S. Supreme Court has apparently decided to step down at the end of the current term. This uh, first report was NBC News and Pete Williams, very long term uh, Supreme Court correspondents, uh, correspondent over there and justice correspondent. Uh, CNN going with it as well. Stephen Breyer to retire. He's 83 years old. He'll step down from the current um, court again at the end of the current term, which would mean June. And that means uh, they that Joe Biden will uh, have another a new Supreme Court justice on the court by its next term, which would begin October 1st of uh, this year. That's huge and will come as big news and welcome news to the, the liberals out there who have been pressuring this guy to get the hell off the court while they still have a Democratic president and a, and a Democratic Senate uh, that could confirm him. And uh, keep in mind, the Democrats do confirm the Senate. This won't be one of those things where Manchin or Cinema will stop a Democratic nominee from getting up uh, onto the bench. I mean, unless it's somebody who really is totally unqualified, like we saw, for for example, Harriet Myers, who George W. Bush withdrew once he realized he couldn't get her through. Um, and so this will mean that a liberal seat on the high court remains liberal. 
um, for all intents and purposes. I mean, if you if you want to read the tea leaves, that's what will happen. He'll step down. Biden will choose somebody else, um, nominate, and then they will have to be confirmed by the Senate. And that means the current balance of 6-3 on the Supreme Court this time next year will probably look exactly the same, except instead of having an 83-year-old man He's the oldest man on the court right now Um, in that one seat. They'll probably have somebody in their 40s if the Democrats play this right, because you want to get somebody younger uh, who can sit on the court for a long, long time. Big news. And uh, and who knows if Monica Crowley was right. Remember her theory? If she was right, uh, who knows? It could be Kamala Harris. Biden has uh, has previously said that he said on the campaign trail, he can always change his mind that if he were to have a seat, open up. He would nominate a black female that would that would she would qualify. Monica's theory was that they would turf Kamala Harris off to the Supreme Court. They would draft in somebody. She believes the Hillary Clinton team would make it would really want it to be them uh, as VP. And uh, that would pave the way toward better electoral returns for the Democrats in 2024. It's fascinating. My goodness. Okay, we'll continue to follow the news. Back to our gun debate. Uh, Stephen and Mike are back with me, and let's talk about the AR-15. AR-15 rifles, they look scary. They look like a machine gun. They're not a machine gun. They're nothing like a machine gun. They're actually much more like the Glock that you pull out of your, you know, side pocket and shoot. Um, It's a semi-automatic rifle. That's my understanding. Uh, Stephen, you're the expert, but more and more there's a focus on these these weapons in particular, trying to ban them. Um, We talked earlier about how there's about 400 million plus weapons in the United States. Uh, I read that there are uh, it's 434 million guns in the United States, according to the Trade Association for U.S. Firearm Industry. They estimate 20 million of those are ARs, some sort of AR weapon. So your thoughts on whether that gun is getting a bad rap. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot to talk about with the AR. I think, uh, for one, it's the most popular rifle in, in the country, uh, which is probably why it occasionally will turn up in some of these high-profile shootings because, uh, I mean, it's just it's so ubiquitous. Um, there's one literally over my shoulder here for those watching on YouTube. Um, but it, it's, it, it is a uh, derivative of the military rifle you know, similar platform but as you alluded to a different firing mechanism inside of it that only allows for semi-automatic fire which is one round per pull of the trigger whereas the military version is capable of fully automatic fire which is continuous fire when you pull the trigger until you let go uh, so that is a, one significant difference um in, in the gun's operation but otherwise it's it's you know similar design, uh, which is also probably one of the reasons why it's so popular, because you have a lot of veterans who come back and want to own the gun that they trained with, or at least the same platform. And uh, it's the same I, same reason that the 1911, the old army sidearm is extremely popular in America. You know, it was a gun designed for use in military context, and it's now probably, if not the most popular gun design in the handgun market certainly one of the most popular and um you know they are really not used that often in crime uh rifles as a whole which ars are just a subset of uh, are only used in about 300 murders per year according to the fbi that's out of uh, about 15,000 per year and over the last two years that number has actually increased quite a bit as, as you alluded to earlier in the show and so you know, they get a lot of attention, 
probably because of how they look. They look similar to the military gun. They are a similar design. But um, when you look at the data, they're clearly not drivers of the the crime epidemic in America. And, and I don't think they were drivers of the murder spike we've seen over the last two years either. These aren't guns that are commonly used by criminals uh, in their activities. So that, yeah, that Mike, I think is an important distinction to make. Mike, we the saw gun. them used, um, an AR-15 was used in the Parkland shooting in Florida and the uh, school shooting um, there where I think, I think it was 17 and, kids were killed, 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are AR style, AR-15 style uh, rifles, because AR-15, I guess, is a brand name. So you, you have guns that are that look just like that. One was used um, in Aurora, Colorado, that movie theater mass shooting. Sandy Hook saw. as well. Yeah. Sandy Hook, the worst. I mean, I mean, honestly, just the most unfathomable mass shooting of all time. Um, so that that this leads people, I think, in great frustration, including myself, saying, what the hell can we do? What can we do? Um, do everything. Do everything. Uh, that's that leads people to say, get rid of the AR-15s. But I, I just don't. That's not the. That's not realistically the answer. It's the same thing as a handgun, which is what was used, for example, in Virginia Tech, the most deadly mass shooting we've had um, of all time. I mean, in, or at least in recent history, uh, at a school. I mean. Uh, so you tell me whether the AR-15 is being sort of wrongly targeted or singled out. Well, I'm, I'm not. <clears throat> I think first of all, everything Stephen said is right, and so it's worth like looking at statistics and numbers. And the point you're making is also correct too. I mean, ultimately, it's a small, it's a it's a small figure on, in a much vaster scale of gun homicide. I mean, it just the, the problem, I guess, is. It has an outside presence because of where it has shown up historically, which are these like milestone mass shooting events um, that are really, if you think about it, they're 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 fairly akin to acts of terrorism in, in the sense that like it's while they're ultimately still not frequent, they're persistent enough that they upset the social contract, especially in places that we expect to be safe, whether that be our children's schools. Or the you know uh, church, um, <clears throat> a concert, the movie theater, any of the places that you're talking about. So it obviously it's it's more it's it becomes like it's a it's a it's a symbol, and and that I guess is why people are so drawn to it because it's it it, it creates an obviously visceral reaction, especially because the thing about the things that are tied to it are the deaths of children. Um, that's I think the first thing people come to mind. I think the AR first became widely recognized after Sandy Hook as like mm-hmm. a, as a tool of, yes. as a tool of terror but but if you were if you were actually seeking and i think that everybody is most people we are anyway to address like everyday gun violence then of course like banning the ar is is really not going to make a dent in that and that's not right. going to be the thing that's going to change the lives of people who actually live with this on a daily basis um, which is again why i could come back to just it's why it feels like uh, accountability is the most important thing. I mean, you're talking about the Michigan shooting and the fact that the um, in the school there that the the parents are being prosecuted for that. That's an incredibly, as you know, an incredibly rare outcome. People who traditionally don't secure their firearms in such a way in which their children can't get a hold of them um, 
are not or even even when states have laws that seek to hold people accountable for for failing to secure their firearms in such a way that minors can't get them those cases are rarely prosecuted in the first place um so but can one I ask you about think- that? Let's just let's pause there because that kid, he's 15 years old. His parents wanted him to have it. Like like that case is right. an outlier yeah. in that they got him the gun. They knew he was having trouble. He, the the school certainly had identified him as a disturbed kid, and the parents were celebratory of him having the gun. I mean, even if you had a law that said you must secure the gun from the child, do any of us believe these parents would have said, "Make sure you lock it up so that he can't get it"? They they were thrilled that he had it no i i I, presumably there i mean well they bought him a gun to use which is less which is i think the less typical scenario than a parent owning a gun that is not the child and just leaving it unsecured so that somebody can like go easily retrieve it so it's i'm right in some ways the scenario is unique because it was in theory it was his whereas like a more typical scenario would be like newtown right where the kid gets his mom's gun and then wreaks havoc with it so Yes, but that's also, but that's also parents, in, in also yeah. in that situation, though, does, and knowing what we now know about that sick, sick killer in, at Newtown, nothing would have stopped him. You think if it was the mother put a lock on the gun unit cabinet that he wouldn't have broken it and got like it's absurd. These mass killers will kill. They will find a way. This is what drives me nuts about the gun debate. Look, and I said this, I was on the air at NBC after Florida and Parkland, and I said, everything has to be on the table. You know, this has to stop happening. Everything needs to be on the table. There can be no NRA shutdowns of the discussion. There can be no, nothing's on the table, like something's off limits. But the thing I always come back to is show me the thing that would have stopped it. And for me, and I'm happy if you want to talk me out of this, for me, I always come back to we need better interventions when we see somebody's mental health going south. It's talk about red flags. Red flags are almost always all over these mass shooters. Almost always. It's very rare that you can look back and say there was nothing we should have seen. What we need is a meaningful place to put them and make it easier to commit them while that aura of concern, suspicion is around them. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think that's true. I, I don't I don't. And it's certainly like I don't you know, I, I don't think take taking stricter measures when it comes to like, you know, gun storage and having a, like a robust public um, education campaign in support of those laws to like let people know that they exist would be at the exclusion of also having like a far better system for dealing with people who are like struggling with their mental health. I mean, I, don't, I think that those things probably in fact should and ought to go hand in hand with each other. Um, you know, I, and I, so that, that's, that's true. Um, can I say for sure that like, if there was a, you know, if there was a law on the books that said like, if you have a gun, you're required to secure it in such a way, so your minor can't get it and if they do you're going to be held liable and prosecuted in some way with you know whatever whatever the the penalty is if that was widely understood to be the law um would it eliminate like these situations no 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 not any more than having like a limit on the legal limit on alcohol consumption for when you're going to drive a car has eliminated drunk driving um but it what i mean i i usually the function of the law most of the time is 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 to be like is to is to be a deterrent is it is it not i mean that's sort of the it doesn't fix everything you're looking to diminish um, not to not to entirely eliminate i mean you'd like to eliminate but i see your point well what about yeah 
Well, what do you, what do you make I, of that? I just have two points to make here real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Um, because uh, you know that's fair, right? Uh, obviously, uh, certainly, sometimes you could get arguments that if it doesn't completely eliminate the problem, uh, you know, it's completely useless altogether. And and I, you know, Mike's point there is fair that about diminishing and how law works in in real life, that you're not going to by making murder illegal, you don't eliminate murder, but doesn't mean it should be legal. Uh, I understand that. Uh, two points though. One, um, I, you know, a lot of these mass shooters, if you look through. Uh, the history here have have been able to obtain guns legally, including the Parkland shooter, uh, because a lot of the red flags that they exhibited along the way went uh, unnoticed or undealt with. Uh, the Parkland shooter is a, a very good example of this because he had actually uh, been involved. One, he had uh, you know had suicidal ideation that he expressed to school officials he could have been committed for that he was involved in several domestic violence incidents which he could have been charged over either one of those things would have at least made him a prohibited person um and it would have made it much more difficult for him to obtain a gun uh in that circumstance uh you know and there's there's a number of shooters including the the virginia tech shooter should have been prohibited was prohibited but was his records weren't in the system same thing for the texas uh, church shooter there's a lot of these examples of either situations where the person ought to have been prohibited if somebody had taken action or they were prohibited but the system didn't work for various reasons um and 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 so there should be more done about that Uh, red flag laws have been one solution to this but of course they have their own issues uh, because, you know, the NRA and uh, other gun rights activists are amenable to this concept in theory, but in practice, they've been opposed to most of the actual uh, laws that have been passed because they don't deal with uh, a number of, of problems. One, they don't have the due process protections that a lot of people would uh, find necessary for something like seizing a, a gun from someone, even temporarily, because uh, you know, uh, owning a gun is is a constitutionally protected right in America, mm-hmm. and it's just a very serious thing to to uh, you know take that right away from somebody, especially with things like ex parte hearings or without um, you know uh, legal representation for the person being accused. Uh, and then on on the other point, you know, assault weapons bans have been sort of the common response to most mass shootings, including Parkland or Sandy Hook or any number of of these attacks that have, uh, as you guys mentioned, featured AR-15s being used. Um, But the way that they work in practice, it's very questionable as to how much of an effect they would have. What uh, was included in in an assault weapons ban? I mean, any semi-automatic weapon? And like, how are we going to get all those? 70 million. Usually the way that they are written is that they go after effectively cosmetic features. And this is the common critique of them, that you can't have a a pistol grip with a flash hider uh, on a semi-automatic rifle that also accepts uh, detachable magazines. And so, you know, you can have a gun that uh, looks that has all the same functionality as an AR-15, but remains legal under an assault weapons ban because it mm-hmm. doesn't have the sort of cosmetic features that an AR-15 has. Or you can actually, and this this commonly happens, you can modify an AR-15 to just uh, remove the cosmetic features that are actually banned under these proposals. And you know, in the end, they're kind of designed, oftentimes, uh, to make it slightly more inconvenient for uh, 
somebody who's trying to perpetrate a mass shooting to carry one out rather than dealing with, you know, perhaps the red flags of, of a potential perpetrator instead, like the, the, you know, magazine capacity limits, the, uh, one of the main arguments for why those might be effective against mass shootings is that the shooter would have to reload their gun more often in theory, mm-hmm. if you were able to eliminate the hundreds of millions of uh, high capacity magazines that are now in circulation in the United States. And so this sort of, I think there's a lot of, uh, almost magical thinking that goes into some of these restrictions that happen to be, unfortunately, the main policy prescriptions that we've been debating for 30 years. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of other things that we we could uh, we could look at in terms of uh, how to prevent these things. I mean, red flag laws are more recent innovation that has unfortunately become extremely polarized. Uh, they only really pass in blue states at this point because mm-hmm. because of the opposition I mentioned earlier that there isn't really doesn't seem to be a lot of actual uh, interest among our political leaders to come together and try to work out, uh, you know, a red flag law that deals with some of the critiques that people have of them. And yeah, like how can we make it? How can we ensure due process and make sure it's not being used punitively, let's say, by an ex-wife on a on an ex-husband who doesn't deserve to have his gun taken away? Just to correct something I said, it's not 70 million semi-automatic weapons in America. It's 70 percent of the gun market is semi-automatic weapons. And again, the the gun market has put has put 434 million guns into America. So, I mean, you're talking hundreds of millions of semi-automatic pistols out there. There's no way of seizing them. That's not happening. That's just not. Yeah. And so you, we we pacify ourselves by saying, well, automatic weapons ban or assault weapons ban. So we'll get like the worst of the worst. Okay. You're still going to have hundreds of millions of guns in America. And don't forget, as I said, the shooter at Virginia Tech had two had two semi-automatic pistols. That's that's what he did. You can unleash a lot of hell with just a semi-automatic weapon, so, you know, handgun, uh, a pistol. Yeah, and those are never going to go away. Defense, They're yeah. not going to go away. So so what's the answer, and, right? So let's talk to the guys right after this quick break about is there something that we actually could do to make our communities safer against bad guys who get their hands on gun guns? Don't go away. Remember, you can find The Megan Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east and the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. Would love it if you went there now and checked out our monologue, our opening monologue from yesterday, which was about it was in response to Whoopi Goldberg trying to call people who want the COVID restrictions to go away selfish, saying, how dare we? Right. Uh, so I had some words for her that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, if you prefer an audio podcast, you can subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast for free. And there you will find our full archives with more than 240 shows, including our other debates uh, and discussions on climate change, on Israel and Gaza, on trans athletes and more. Don't go away. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 
there are suggestions that communities with stricter gun laws may not be any safer than those that don't have strict gun laws. But is that true? One of the many things we're going to get to today on our debate between Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload, and Mike Spees, a senior writer for The Trace. Um, okay, so we'll get to that in one second. But I'm just looking at the list of things that Joe Biden had been pushing on the campaign trail. We've talked about two of them. Assault weapons ban, universal uh, background checks. Uh, the others that he has been pushing are an end to internet, internet firearm purchases. And um, then there's just sort of a slew of executive actions, which he's actually uh, taken in part and, and is under pressure to take, which we'll get to. But you tell me, I'll start with you as uh, as somebody who is reasonable and pro-gun. Stephen, is there anything that you think we can be doing? Uh, you heard Mike say more accountability for, you know, gun owners. But is there anything you think we can be doing to try to prevent? I mean, we can't always stop criminals from you know, behaving criminally. Uh, but mm -hmm. some is there any way of cutting down on the number of mass shootings or on, on the on just how mass they are? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, one one thing I would note, uh, just going off what you'd said before the break, is that there, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's 20 million uh, AR-15s and similar style rifles in the country. And I just want to put that in context of uh, that people can understand. Because I think when you get to these big numbers, it's easy to just think, oh, that's a lot. Well, the Small Arms Survey, which is a nonprofit that estimates these things, uh, estimates there's about 1 million small arms in possession of police in the United States, in the, the entire law enforcement community in the United States, and about 4 million in the United States military. So that gives you some You mean like their personal use? No, just Oh, on the job? The, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. In the entire country's law enforcement has about 1 million small arms. Uh, so- U.S. civilians own about 20 times that number in just AR-15 and similar rifles oh, alone. Wow. So it gives you an, a better idea of like how impractical it is to actually try and collect all of those firearms as a solution to these issues. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so you know, because that is something that you know you've had people like Beto O'Rourke suggest. You know, it's obviously not every gun control activist wants this, but no, it no is something that's become. Well, yeah, but it's something that people do legitimately want to try but uh as far as solutions go well why don't we let, um, so, stand by because i'll let mike respond to that point and then we'll go yeah. back to solutions go ahead mike i was just going to say you just highlighted a very interesting point i mean it just it, there which is to say that you've just pointed out that law enforcement is is vastly outgunned when it like, compared to the american public and we're talking yes. many 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 orders of magnitude um and I guess, I mean, that not that, that sort of, that sort of, I guess, throws things in, in sharp belief for me. I mean, that one of the things that makes police encounters, one of the factors more fraught, right, is that police have to assume that any situation they're walking into, somebody could have a gun. And so then it raises the question of what do you do about the guns that are already out there, right? That's sort of the point you're making. Like you can, you can regulate what's not on the market yet, but there are already, as, as Megan, I think you said, about 400 and something million firearms that are, that yeah. are already in the hands 434. of 434. And that does 434. And those are legal guns, right? That doesn't include whatever's on the, on, what is the unknown, the unknown firearms. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it is sort of a, a problem um, for sure that, you know, law enforcement doesn't know where those guns are and that they can't actually be accounted for. 
I realize that like making the argument for a registry, and I'm not about to do that, is is a, effectively a political non-starter. Though it, it tends to be the case that arguments for any kind of regulation, including red flag laws, as you're pointing out, often are non-starters. So you know, what does it even matter? So why why not just say whatever I want? And in that case, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't really buy the. I think it's a fairly weak argument, which is it's sort of how this is made. The, the sort of abstract slippery slope argument that if there if, if if Americans were somehow required to register their guns, it would open the door to a, a certain kind of tyranny in which you know there would be mass gun confiscation. I know you're pointing out what's happening in Canada with AR-15s. All the points that have been made here about AR-15s are valid and right. There is, I think, a question that is asked, which is like, like why what civilian application do these weapons have? You could say the same thing about handguns too, um, but I think that's sort of the point that gets raised because they they show up because they because their their analog is is the military rifle that you were talking about. Um, and I get it. You're I you're saying, just, you're explaining why they continue to be targeted without right. defending necessarily the the targeting because if AR-15s if we could get rid of those and get rid of mass shootings, I, I mean every mom I know would be in line to do that to vote for the guy who would do that, but. It's we all know the truth. It's it's not going to, you know, as I said, 70 somebody will do the math on 70 percent of 434 million and tell me how many uh, semi-automatic pistols there are. OK, so one more quick break because we do have to pay bills and then uh, get to the solutions and about what Joe Biden's pushing now and also whether more and more states should pursue the equivalent of the Texas abortion ban approach on guns, because now at least three states are. Uh, will it succeed? Don't go away. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights. Bolder solutions. Better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG. Make the difference. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We're about to get into solutions. And one of the ones proposed by Joe Biden is smart guns, smart guns. He has said that he would like to see eventually 100 percent of all the new guns sold in America be, quote, smart guns. Stephen, what is a smart gun? And is that a smart idea? Well, he's actually said something more extreme than that, especially during the debates uh, that he wanted all guns immediately to only be uh, sold as smart guns, which. Uh, right now is not possible because there isn't a single one on the market. <laughs> However, uh, there are some coming to market this year, and I actually was able to uh, see one in person at, at the industry's uh, trade show in Las Vegas last week. Uh, but a smart gun is uh, the way that we we talk about it generally in media is, is a gun that is, has an internal locking mechanism built into the actual firearm 
that uses either a fingerprint scanner or an RFID uh, reader paired with like a, a special watch or a special ring in order to unlock the gun so that the user can shoot it. Um, whether they're a good idea or not is sort of up for debate uh, about just whether you know somebody would be interested in buying something like that. The more serious debate is over whether or not they should be mandated as as what uh, the president wants to do. Well, what's the what would be the reason not to do it, right? So to make it, I mean, I guess the goal is that way your kid can't fire your gun if they find it loaded in your bedstand, um, right. or some thief who comes into your house and steals your gun isn't going to be able to make it operate unless they steal your ring. Uh, which you presumably have on you and so on. So they're trying to right. cut down on I illegal thefts and other thefts of, of guns and, and to yeah. make them not usable. That's the idea, right? But uh, as anyone who's ever used a cell phone with a fingerprint scanner could probably tell you they are not the most reliable things. And you might not want to bet your life on whether or not your fingerprint scanner can actually read your fingerprint at the moment you need to shoot the gun. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see the sort of the obvious drawbacks of, of this sort of technology. It, it sounds great in practice or great in theory, and it could work in practice. And the, all these guns that are coming to market are still early prototypes, frankly. I wasn't even able to actually manipulate the gun or handle it at SHOT Show. So uh, we don't really know how well they work at this point. Um, and it's still in its infancy, largely because there was a mandate in New Jersey that said they had passed a law in 2002 so that, that said as soon as one of these sorts of guns becomes available on the market anywhere in the country, that would be the only kind of gun that could be sold in New Jersey, you know, eliminating completely traditional firearms, hmm. which a lot of people are highly skeptical of the reliability of these kinds of guns. I mean, just think about, you know, the gun you use for self-defense needing to be recharged in and of itself, even if the technology works perfectly, mm. uh, is a problem that a lot of people are going to have. Good point. That, the, the other thing is, I, Mike, that uh, there was a Reuters article pointing out that in 2014, a German company yeah. put a put a smart, smart gun, 22 caliber pistol on the market. But it was pulled after hackers discovered a way to remotely jam the gun's radio signals and using magnets, they found a way to fire the gun when it should have been locked. So that seems like it should be the end of the smart gun discussion. But am I wrong? No, I mean, I, I look. In terms of just looking at the reliability of technology, it, it's definitely not unfair to raise the questions that Stephen is raising. It's true. I mean, I struggle with the thumbprint thing on my phone all, all the time. I guess, though, you sort of bring up a different point, which is like, that's a problem because of a self-defense scenario. But the one thing that we don't really address is that the vast majority of people who have guns for self-defense scenarios are never going to be in a scenario in which they need them for self-defense. I mean, there's not like an exact number on this, but it's just like traditionally the case that when it comes to legal gun ownerships, specifically in outstates, rural areas, suburbs that sort of drive policy in a lot of places, those are places that have like generally like fairly low rates of gun violence. And again, I'm not saying, well, then that means that, you know, I'm, I, that's the, the, the point. I'm not trying to make the point. Um that that should mean, well, then, you know, for that reason, you should have to have a smart gun because you're probably never going to have to use it. But it is also worth stating that a lot of supply is driven by this theoretical idea 
that you're going to need a gun in a situation that you're almost never going to be in. But that supply also then fuels the illegal gun market, creating problems for those that are actually going to be in that situation. What about this? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, as far as uh, how often guns are needed in self-defense, I mean, obviously, there's quite a lot of controversy over this. And there's several different estimates you could look at. Uh, Gary Kleck, who's a a criminologist at Florida State University, well-known for studying this topic and has come up, you know, he's done surveys that indicate uh, there's two to three million self-defense uses of guns uh, each year. Uh, Others have put the number, you know, significantly lower than that, although there was a, a DOJ review uh, during the Obama administration that concluded that, you know, whatever estimate you use for how often guns are used in self-defense, it's still clear that they're used far more often for self-defense than they are to commit crimes uh, by, by uh, you know, any estimate that's that's out there. So, uh, you know, just to speak to that a little bit, I understand what Mike's getting at as far as like, um, hopefully most people will never have to use the guns that they have bought for self-defense because nobody wants to be in a situation where you have to use deadly force against someone else. Uh, But people do buy them because they want to have that option, just like you would buy a fire extinguisher, even though you hope never to have to use it. And that's where smart guns also come into play. It's like people should be able to buy them if they want them. You know, people buy biometric safes that have some of the similar drawbacks, right, that put a gun into. So, you know, I could see somebody wanting to integrate those two things. What about, you know, the... My my history tells me that the real purpose behind the Second Amendment was people wanted to be armed in case the government came knocking and in case a militia organized by the government came to sort of take over their 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 house, their their belongings and so on. And um, I'm not saying that's that's going to happen in 2022. Yeah, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. That's literally what happened at Concord and 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 Lexington. Right. That was. Yeah. the spark of the American Revolution was the shot heard around the world was fired in opposition to the British Army trying to confiscate guns from the colonists. So, yeah, that that is a big part of American gun tradition. That seems to me an argument against the smart gun, because it's like, why would you give control to like who's to say the government wouldn't be able to interfere with all of that technology to shut down the use of your gun, of everyone's gun, you know, in some crazy, you know, conspiracy theory world. But I mean, if you look at sort of the purpose behind the Second Amendment, what people are worried about, and there are some people who are worried about our government or whatever, they have a right, it's written right into their constitution. I don't think they want to give anybody, hackers or far more nefarious actors, the ability to stop their gun from firing, right, from a remote place. And that would well, be a concern. I don't, if what it's, and you know, I, I'm not one to really, uh, say which is the best or most useful policy and and if i but i mean my personal assessment is i i do think smart guns probably rank pretty low on that list i think there are more useful things or smarter things that could potentially be done i am curious though if i don't mind backing up for one second Stephen, did you did you say there are numbers that suggest that self-defense shootings outnumber criminal shootings yes. that seems i've never seen it before i i one thing that is surprising. There's a couple of things that are surprising to me about that. Well, in fact, just the just the the idea of it that um, I, that seems that seems very shocking to me. But two, there's also this other question of of, of how self defense shootings get characterized as self defense shooting, which is to say, I mean, it's an app. It's a it's a subjective scenario that I mean is is retroactively characterized as self defense by the person 
who pulled the trigger. It's no, and so it's, uh, but um, um, what is the number? I mean, what, what do you have? Do you have numbers? On yeah, uh, well, what the, this uh, is from a, a DOJ uh, uh, review that was ordered under the Obama administration, um, and I believe it was uh, 2014, uh, where they reviewed uh, some of the uh, the, the studies that have, have looked at how frequent defensive gun uses are. And to be clear, defensive gun use does not necessarily mean that somebody actually shot their gun at someone else. It, it can be a scenario where uh, they display the gun to, to uh, you know, stop, to deter someone from attacking them, similar situation. And those are, uh, Gary Kleck's numbers are self-reported. It's a survey. So some of those uses may even be, you know, illegal uh, in theory, although you know, Gary Kleck's written a lot about this. I'd encourage people to, you know, go and read his, his actual writing uh, to get a better view of it and some of the critiques of it as well, as, as you've mentioned here. Um, but yeah, effectively, you know, DOJ compared that and some other estimates that put the numbers lower. Uh, there, there's a couple of uh, uh, crime surveys uh, that that are done each year uh, by different institutions that, that somewhat address gun uh, defensive gun uses that put the number lower, maybe half a million instead of 2 million to 3 million a year. And then, uh, you know, they looked at the number of, of uh, crimes committed with a firearm as well, which tend to be in the 100,000 range, not necessarily murders. Like we talked about murders earlier. That's obviously yeah. a smaller number, but, uh, but, you know, so you get, um, you, when you, when the DOJ looked at those two comparisons, they found that whatever the, estimates were, you know, and there is a range, defensive gun use was still more common than criminal gun use in the United States. Uh, and so that, that was just my, the point I was getting at as far as, uh, you know, what, what the information is available out there on how guns are yep. used. Um, certainly even with 3 million gun use, defensive gun uses a year, that's still, uh, you know, what, uh, less than 1% of all guns being used in self-defense uh, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, cause there's over 400 million in the country. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there's yeah. point go there. ahead, Mike. I, I mean, I, well, I think like this one thing is interesting, you know, just to at least talk about is that the, the idea of, of self-defense as a right, I don't mean with a, a gun specifically, just in general, you know, I don't, it's sort of inarguable. One should have the right to defend themselves, but it's interesting how, Self-defense is also, I mean, it's, it, it is, it is also, it's a, it's also a marketing concept. Um, and the problem with that, going back to what I was saying earlier is that that marketing tends to be directed at communities that are, again, have, have generally fairly low rates of gun violence. And I think it would, it would be pretty hard to challenge the idea that most gun owners will never encounter that kind of situation where they'll have to, well, they'll have to pull their gun. But because, because that, I mean, again, it's because that's a driver of of supply. um, And because we have this issue in which, uh, as I was saying earlier, gun sellers are not really required to secure their firearms in such a way that it's, 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 it's ultimately they're, they're fairly easy targets for, for theft. And also, this is an, a- an ATF problem. The ATF does a pretty bad job at shutting down gun dealers that engage in trafficking activity. You know, uh, inspections are uh, not conducted as frequently as they should be. As you know, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to inspect a store more than one time a year if that store gets inspected at all. Um, uh, 
stores off stores that engage in bad activity, whether it be like poor accounting of inventory, other red flag issues. Often they're let off with a warning multiple times when it becomes fairly clear that they're engaged in, in trafficking. Uh, and obviously those weapons wind up in the communities where they where, where guns are used in a in a way that sort of terrorizes you know sort of terrorizes people on a on a daily basis. Um, and I think so. Anyway, this is all a way to say if if I were to pick, and I, I think this is where I'll, I'll say something that probably everybody will disagree with. But if, if I were if I if I was thinking about it a, a useful tactic for accountability, um, then I think that it would make more sense to focus on the sort of broad industry immunity that exists right now for the the gun industry. Okay, so now um, let's get let's get to it because you've been pushing accountability and we haven't right. really gotten into what does that mean, right? Because the gun the gun manufacturers are not allowed they they may not be held liable right now for the use of their firearm in a homicide, right? They, they, we we haven't done to them right. what we did to cigarette companies. Um and though, I mean, I, I don't think it's exactly the same thing, the, the gun no, manufacturers versus it's cigarette not, manufacturers. Yeah. But in any event, they are shielded from liability. And do you think that that shield should be removed? I think, well, I mean, I guess, or maybe, maybe, the, maybe at least amended. I mean, I think it's a problem that it's so, I mean, I, I know there are some lawsuits that are proceeding right now and have gotten much farther than I think anyone imagined they would. And I think it's the law is frequently misunderstood, as, as, as I think Stephen has smartly pointed out before publicly. It's not it, the law does not allow you know uh, gun makers to 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 market products in like an overly sexy way that makes people want them. That that doesn't that's not covered by industry immunity. But there is this question about whether or not if your if your product and again opioids are not a per, certainly not a perfect analog either. But if your product is being uh, somewhat chronically misused and leading to like a fair amount of death every single year. What the, the question of like, what, for instance, like what, you know, what, there are certain things I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the best way, but it, it seems, it seems, it seems like a, a problem that there's, that there's no, that there's just, there's, there's no way to hold, somebody accountable for that or a company accountable for that that just sort of off the table you know there's no there's no avenue toward discovery no way to know for example to what extent like you know companies are aware or, or what what is it built into their model to what extent like their, their firearms are going to end up being trafficked every year and wind up on you know on the black market as opposed to the legal market uh and is there is there you know what information uh are they internally keeping on uh distributors and how uh they're they're you know, we're talking about bad apple gun dealers but i mean think about this distributors this is like you know they were that this is look a, a gun manufacturer could be held liable if a person gets killed because the gun ma malfunctioned and the person got killed right. yes because the gun yeah. wasn't made Correct. properly in the same way Correct. as if my brakes in my car don't work and i god forbid get hurt i can sue the car manufacturer but gun right. Firearm injury is apparently the 13th leading cause of death in this country, and that that eclipses car crashes for the fourth year in a row, according to my data here. So so mm -hmm. it's it's more likely uh, to kill you than, than a car crash is. Um, 
And yet oh. five years ago, it wasn't that way. You're more likely to die in a car crash. And, and, and yet we don't hold the car industry responsible for drivers who take out the cars and don't drive them well and die or kill somebody in the same way we don't we don't require the gun manufacturers to foresee improper use of their product in a way that you know if you look at 434 million guns in America and consider the fact that we've had 45,000 people killed by guns a year and 60% of those are suicides you can't hold somebody liable for a suicide um it's like you're getting down to numbers that are on a percentage basis that are pretty small. Well, that's true. I mean, I guess the problem with comparing it to the car industry is there's a distinction between car accidents versus like a deliberate misuse. As you know what I mean? I mean, there's obviously some people use their car to kill people on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time when people are dying in car accidents, it is because it is an accident. And I, again, this isn't a, this isn't a, I, I don't want to, suggest that this is sort of a, a perfect way um to to put a dent in like a in a problem that play i mean i want to say you know we could say it plagues the country really it it it, it plagues areas of the country um but i guess it's more like the idea that it's completely off the table uh rather than considering each case on its merits is sort of the problem from my mm. perspective well uh what I, I would question this just a little bit here because i think if you were if there was proof that gun companies were intentionally selling guns to people that they knew were going to commit crimes with them uh that they probably could be held liable even with the protection of lawful commerce and arms act i, I haven't seen any evidence that that's the case obviously there's the argument that You'd need to get to discovery and some of these lawsuits in order to find the evidence of this. And uh, fair enough, I suppose. But but more more often what you're seeing with this controversy, and this goes back to the 90s as well, this the perpetual the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act was a response to a tactic used by gun control groups in the 90s to enlist local uh, cities to uh, sue gun manufacturers over the criminal use of their products by third parties. Generally, years later, most guns that are recovered at crime scenes, according to the ATF's trace data, aren't recovered until eight to 10 years after they've been sold for the first time, after you know the, the gun dealer sold it to a distributor who sold it to a, uh, uh, or sorry, the gun maker sold it to a distributor who sold it to a, a retail customer. Um, you know, so, so it's kind of hard to make that direct liability connection yeah, it's not it's not like the uh the, you know smith and wesson directly to the man who ran out and, d- and committed a mass murder uh, i mean it's, right. it's it's not that simple to trace the and, so and that matters that proximate cause matters when it comes to civil liability and um, this was a specific problem with this industry it's you weren't seeing these sorts of lawsuits against ford for people who like you alluded to earlier go out and kill people with their car by, cars by running them over intentionally um, you know, that you don't see that sort of uh, tactic used against them. And that's why the industry, the gun industry has this particular uh, okay, law in but, place. Um, but while so. we're on the subject of liability, right, make, putting some skin in the game for the gun manufacturers, uh, there are now three states, California, New York and one other, uh, that are styling laws. They're drafting laws that look like the Texas anti-abortion law that's that was just challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court, where they they understand if they were to say no guns in California, it would be reversed immediately. But instead, because of the Second Amendment, but instead there's they're writing laws like if um, 
if you understand that uh, somebody's committed gun violence or or is manufacturing guns, there can be a private civil suit against them um, because we're declaring that you have a private right to sue in in such cases. And that is working right now in Texas. And there's a question about whether it could work against guns. It was a concern expressed by Justice Kavanaugh from the bench when they heard the Texas abortion case. It's been a concern expressed by gun advocates uh, who say this is a slippery slope. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. By the way, my uh, crack producers sent me the article that I think you were referencing, Stephen. This is um, from Forbes, and it's talking about, uh, this is a Forbes article from 2018. It's talking about a 2013 study ordered by the Centers for Disease Control, and they are saying that essentially, um, if you take a look at the data released by the CDC, uh, their data imply that defensive, defensive uses of guns by crime victims are far more common than offensive uses by criminals. Um, and it goes on from there. But in any event, okay, so liability. The three states right now, California, Illinois, and New York, are considering proposals that would mirror in approach the Texas abortion law crackdown, where they create a, a, a civil liability, a, a right uh, to sue civilly um, against people who, in New York, for example, violate New York's gun laws. So gun laws that might not be upheld, anti-gun laws that might not be upheld if the state just wrote them and start, tried to start enforcing them may now be written in as broad and offensive to the Second Amendment way as possible and could potentially stand if they just make it not the state who's going to enforce this, but it's just creating a private cause of action by private citizens who see gun owners um, having a gun or having concealed carry in a, in a way that doesn't comport with a law that uh, that they would like to write. So you tell me, Stephen, whether this is troubling to you and whether you think it'll work. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly I think the trend overall is troubling. Uh, you know, it feels like perhaps if things keep going in this direction, we're all going to be incentivized to sue each other over everything. Uh, well, we already are. That's future, America. Right? <laughs> uh, fair point. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was clear once Texas went down this road road with this sort of novel approach to trying to institute a, uh, an abortion ban, whatever you think of the underlying issue, you know, these people can uh, agree or disagree with, with uh, abortion and whether it should be legal, just like with guns. But it was clear that this would be used uh, probably immediately uh, on trying to enforce gun control laws that couldn't otherwise withstand judicial scrutiny. And now you're, you're seeing sort of uh, the first grasps at, at this uh, with California's governor, uh, Newsom, and uh, the attorney general in, in New York, Letitia James. And, uh, you know, I don't think that their proposals make a lot of sense because right now what they've said is just, we're going to do the same things we're already doing with past laws. Like California already has an assault weapons ban yeah. uh, and, and bans on homemade firearms that aren't uh, serialized. And so, 
Wait, can I ask you that? Because I was confused too. Tish James, the AG of New York, that's what she said. She said, I'm writing a proposal that would allow residents to sue for violations of New York's weapons ban. It's like, well, wait a minute. It doesn't make (laughs) sense. Yeah, it doesn't fit. The ban that's already on the books, right, has been upheld by the courts as constitutional. So why do you need to create like you're not you're not doing what Texas what Texas did there. Texas intentionally wrote a a law that they knew would be unconstitutional if enforced Mm -hmm. by the state. And they just transferred sort of the right of enforcement to private citizens in civil lawsuits. And that's right. how they tried to do the end around. Like, unless that's what so, these states are doing, they're, they're not doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. But I think that the the idea has been planted and now you could use this to really to outlaw gun ownership or gun totally. dealing altogether. Yeah, if you wanted to. And, and frankly, the Supreme Court, uh, it hasn't completely validated this approach, but by letting this law hang around in yep. this way, you know, I, I, my guess is that the courts will figure this out eventually. It is it is a hard tactic to to come to grips with. It's my understanding. I'm not a legal expert, but from what I've ever heard and what I've read, it is a hard tactic to deal with by the based on the way well, it works. But I'm sure my guess is they'll figure it out at some point. I mean, you know, and I'm I'm not uh, privy to the thinking of any of the uh, attorney general, attorneys general, or governors in any of those states. But it also there's at least part of me that thinks that that approach is also just a way to highlight the problems with the Texas law. I mean, I don't know that that would mm-hmm. like I don't you know it was sort of it was yeah. it was clearly a yeah. it's not real. as much of a I mean I I don't know that it's necessarily you know a thought that this is going to have like a this is going to be a really useful approach to you know um, to to bringing down gun violence so much as just mm-hmm. like if you're going to do this. And, and, and infringe on the rights of so many people in Texas and turn people against each other and into basically informants uh, and upset the social contract. Well, then we can do the same thing too, as you're pointing out to like another sacred right that you care about. And, and you know, it just, uh, it seems like it's on just on as it plausible, but it's a way okay. to, well, let right, me ask you a question. To, to we, we, haven't, the, we, yeah. we haven't touched on straw purchases and I feel like we should, because this is another big thing you hear from, um, people who want gun reform, that we have to crack down on straw purchases. So uh, let me give you that one, Mike. What is a straw purchase? And is there any way of cracking down on it? I mean, it's when you, you're you not able to purchase a firearm, so you have somebody else purchase one for you who is able to legally buy one. And is that is that often uh, and- done by, by gun salesmen with a wink and a nod, like they know, they know it's not the person, but, you know, here you go anyway, because I want the money. Well, I don't, you know, it would be it would be intellectually dishonest in me to suggest that that happens often only because I don't I don't know if there's a way of empirically measuring that. Um, mm-hmm. It definitely I, so, but I mean, certainly there are plenty. I mean, there 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 are certainly gun dealers who know uh, and are are you know engaged in those kinds of trafficking schemes and are aware that they're selling to people like you know essentially to launder firearms to people who aren't supposed to have them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. If they don't know, if the if the gun manufacturer, if the gun seller doesn't know, then how do we crack down on it? Because it's already illegal for somebody to do that. Well, well, so one way to potentially crack down on it, uh, just potentially, and I don't I mean, is, again, another accountability measure, which is like in most places. I, I don't. I think almost every place. And this has been a big fight in Philadelphia, which is where you know Stephen's uh, backyard or old backyard, um, which is putting a requirement. I mean, I guess in this case, it's a, it would be a, it would not be a stolen weapon. But I, you know, if you're 
most places you're not required to report to the police if your firearm has gone missing. Um, if you had a measure in place that required you to do that and you were a straw purchaser and then the gun you bought wound up in the hands of somebody else who committed a crime with it, uh, that could be one potential way. I mean, it's again, it's a, it's a back end. It's not a front end. I don't know that you can stop it on the front end, but if, you know, if, if, if straw purchaser, um, uh, shows up in like a trace, I mean, that's sort of the, you know, that I, I can't well, really think of another way. I mean, well, that's sort uh, of the only. What, what I would suggest one that this is, this is an area where you probably have broad agreement, prosecution of straw purchasers, people who are intentionally lying uh, to buy a gun for someone they know can't legally own one. I think a lot of people across the spectrum on this particular point would agree that we want to see further enforcement of this because you, you don't often see uh, crimes like that or even a crime where somebody who is prohibited tries to buy a gun and fails the background check. Often these don't, uh, they don't rank at the top of uh, federal prosecutors priority lists. So they, they don't tend to get their, they tend to be paperwork crimes. Right. And so they, they're not very sexy to prosecute, but uh, they are fairly important. I think most people would agree. Uh, and this sort of goes back to your original question of like, how do we deal with with gun crime? Uh, perhaps, you know, mass shootings and your general everyday sort of gun crime are, are different uh, problems that have different solutions. But one thing that I think a lot of pro-gun advocates would say is stricter enforcement of current gun laws, like straw purchasing uh, infractions, would be one way of reducing crime uh, going forward. And, and so this is straw purchases, you know, if you, if you are more often prosecuting people for committing them, especially in circumstances where it's uh, clear that they knew they were selling a gun or buying a gun for a criminal, uh, that that's something that you could probably see quite a lot of agreement on. Hmm. Okay. Let's, let me ask you the question of gun laws. If we tighten them up, um, you know, New York City's got very tight gun laws. Most of the blue states have tighter gun laws than the red states. Um, and yet we do see, you know, tons of murders and homicides in states like New York and in New York City in Chicago, which is in Illinois um, and in California, which has you know tight gun laws as well. And whenever that happens, whenever you see like a record number of homicides in Chicago, which we saw in 2021, people say, oh, so much for the gun laws. Right. Like the, the tighter gun laws don't lead to a lower crime rate. So I don't know whether that's true. Uh, we did look up a chart and this is from the Gifford Center, as in Gabby Giffords, and they are definitely not pro gun. Um, you know, they want gun reform and they want it yesterday. And I understand that, especially given what happened to her. But they went through and sort of ranked each state, all 50 states, by the strength of their gun laws. And so if you have a really, really tight restrictions like California does, like they're ranked number one in terms of the number of gun laws they have and how strong they are. And then they said how many deaths per 100,000 by guns. And California is, has only seven deaths per 100,000. And then you've got, if you look up and down the list, the states that have like an F from the Gifford Center and rank at the bottom of the list in terms of gun law and gun control, they do have higher gun deaths per 100,000. So this would seem, Stephen, to put the lie to the notion that these blue states that have very tight gun laws have higher 
death rates by guns. It seems to be the opposite, that the more loose your gun laws, the higher number of deaths by gun you're going to see in your state. Is that true? Right. Well, the first thing I would point out there is uh, you're talking about gun deaths, not gun murders, which is, again, yeah. two thirds of those are going to be suicides. Um, and, and so the solution is, again, another area where the solution for gun murder and the solution for gun suicide are going to be very different, sure. uh, most likely. And, and so, uh, you know, that's one thing to point out with these sorts of rankings that you see from the gun control groups. Uh, Every town did did a similar one recently as well. And and I would also point out that it doesn't necessarily correlate, especially gun murders versus uh, you know the the gun control rankings for which which states they feel have the best gun laws. Um, and oftentimes you'll the argument you'll get in response to to this problem, like for instance, Washington D.C. is far more. Uh, has far more gun violence than Virginia, even though Virginia has far fewer gun restrictions, um, even with the new restrictions that were passed uh, recently here in the state. Um, And oftentimes the argument will be that, well, uh, it's because uh, Virginia fuels the violence in D.C., which frankly is sort of specious in my mind, because if if Virginia is the problem, uh, Virginia's gun laws are the problem. Why doesn't Virginia have the same gun violence issue mm. that that Maryland or, or DC has? Good point. Um, but uh, well, and then they'll often also argue that in, in states uh, like, for instance, um, um, Vermont that have looser gun laws than uh, most of the rest of uh, New England, they also have low crime rates, and they'll argue that those low crime rates in Vermont are the result of the surrounding states having. Uh, stricter gun laws. So you, you kind of get this well, uh, situation where they, they're sort of cherry picking the logic here, uh, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And I personally, I'll let Mike, Mike respond here in a second. I just personally, I think it's more complicated. There's a lot of things that go into why a state has high violence rates or low violence rates. And it's not just whatever their gun laws happen to be, because you'll get the same argument from, from some pro-gun people as well, that uh, you know the states that have uh, or areas that have more guns or l- lesser uh, uh, gun regulation have lower crime than, you know, rural areas are, have less crime than cities do, even though most cities have stricter gun laws than rural areas. Mm-hmm. And it, it's more complicated than that in real in real life, I think. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, I think also, you know, as you're pointing out, it's not it, comparing Virginia, for example, to D.C. is not apples to apples. I mean, there are entirely different social factors that play in a city like the District of Columbia or even in New York. Having said that, even in New York, with the exception of the last two years in which we had, a, you know, complete like a, a once in a once in a lifetime pandemic. Before that happened, gun crime in New York City was low especially for a city of 8 million people for many years. I mean, you know, post the high suicide, I mean, high, high homicide rates of the 80s and early 90s, the city was like, a, I would say, an exceptionally safe place to live until two years ago. It's, It's still fairly safe. I mean, gun homicide has risen, still substantially lower than the high rates of its worst periods, which is worth pointing out. Um, I mean, It is also we don't we've never we've never lived in a country where we have any uniformity of law when it comes to guns anyway. So it's like when we talk about Chicago, 
I mean, you know, it's, a city can enforce whatever ordinances it wants, but it's not like it lives on an, it's like a city's like got a wall around it, it's an island, it's next to Indiana. It's got neighboring outstate areas that have different gun cultures than the city does. I mean, it's not, there's no way to, you know, whatever, whatever law you impose, there's obviously, the problem is like, how do you choke off trafficking? into areas that are prone to having high rates of gun violence and asking why those areas have high rates of gun violence. Usually they do, right, because uh, of a number of social factors that I think we sort of briefly touched on, whether it be like uh, lack of industry, uh, poverty, historical segregation, redlining, all these things that have created problems within cities that have never really been addressed, systemic factors that have never been touched or addressed uh, meaningfully that sort of you i mean it's it is that combined with easy access to firearms that creates uh centers where there are high rates of gun violence um all right so let me just, ask you this let, let, yeah. let me let me zoom out for a minute okay because what i've concluded now after th- this show is um we're up shit's creek without a paddle as they say, we already have the country is swimming in guns. It's a gun yeah. culture. It just is. It yeah. has been since its founding. And we mere mortals who find ourselves living in 2022, there's not much we can do about it. They was this way for hundreds of years before we got here. And it remains this way now. Practically, realistically, we're not going to change that. And so I don't I don't see the solution to homicide rates or mass shootings as crackdowns on the guns. It's not to say we couldn't change things at the edges. So understanding that that's the best we could hope for in terms of the guns. And again, the the mental health discussion is a whole other discussion, which we'll have to have on another show, because that's an area in which I really do think we could we could make a difference. But, um, you know, when somebody's crazed and wants to murder another person or never mind a mass murder, really hard to stop them by taking away this weapon or that you know you, you can use yes. a car you can use a knife we've seen yeah. it in london we've seen it in waukesha you like you want to kill a lot of people there are a lot of ways to do it so anyway if i said to you this steven you get you get to choose one right as like do you have kids i i don't right now okay but, but you i care have plenty about of loved ones certainly. yeah exactly so you you care about you know your 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 family or whatever you can choose one reform that you think will make the greatest difference in cutting down on the gun homicide rate, the, you know, the gun mass shooting rate, what would it be? Uh, probably stricter enforcement of current laws uh, combined with uh, community violence interruption programs. I, I think those those two things could be um, make a real difference. I mean, and, and I understand the pessimism, but I would point out that, you know, as Mike alluded to earlier, there, the murder rate used to be much higher in this country than it is now. Uh, even after this, but it's creeping. Recently. So there, there are it's ways creeping. to. Well, to this. your point, yeah, stricter enforcement of laws. And of course, the country's going in the opposite way right now with these soft on crime DAs who I mean, we, these cops, we kicked off the show with these two poor cops who got murdered um, by this suspect uh, Friday night. And it, what happened in, in New York? That used to get you the death penalty. Boom. You kill a cop. You're facing the chair period, end of report. No longer. The new DA, Alvin Bragg, um, is not going to enforce a bunch of laws that are already on the books. He's not allowed to do that. It's not the same as prosecutorial discretion. He's he's changing the law with the stroke of his pen. 
I'm not saying that this guy shot the cops because he knew he wouldn't be getting the death penalty, but he won't be getting the death penalty because this guy changed the laws. We're going softer on crime. I do think it has a factor in the higher crime rates that we're seeing. But can you just speak to before I give it to Mike for his one yeah. thing, the the the, the, the violence intervention? So we haven't touched yes. that. And I've read some of your articles on it. Yeah, violence interruption programs are actually one of those areas where you probably would see a lot of agreement as well, uh, because they aren't focused on trying to ban certain guns or restrict ownership by law-abiding people or anything like that. It, and and it also isn't using necessarily law enforcement uh, uh, tactics to try and, and stop shootings. Uh, instead, it focuses on using community leaders and providing uh, you know, community support to some to the small number of people who tend to be the ones most at risk to actually commit these sorts of violent acts, because it's not like even in a large city, it's it's not a lot of people generally who are out there committing these shooters. It's a small group of people. And if you can uh, intervene with somebody that they respect, perhaps you can create a situation that off ramps that tension and, and uh reduces the potential for violence. And you have seen some studies that indicate this, this approach has worked. And you're actually seeing some funding being directed towards this without much pushback from, uh, or any pushback really, from gun rights advocates, uh, because it doesn't interfere with someone's uh, lawful person's ability to own firearms. Mm. Okay, go ahead, Mike. One thing. Yeah, I think that's sensible. Uh, setting aside societal factors and root causes, which I think we were just touching on. If I had to yes. pick one specific gun policy, um, I think I think that I would focus again on uh, gun dealers uh, specifically. And for, I mean, if we're, if we're talking seriously about combating everyday gun violence, um, then I think that means better regulation of, of gun shots. Ups, uh, and not allowing uh, dealers to openly flout restrictions, doing a better job with inspections, uh, not letting not letting dealers that are posing serious red flags off with repeated warnings, um, requiring dealers to better secure their their wares in such a way that it's it's more difficult to steal them in large numbers. Um, I think if again, those are the guns that that end up going to the places that deal with yeah. gun violence on like a, a daily basis. So if that's what we really care about, because mass shootings are horrible in the sense that they they live in our imagination, they upset the social contract, they they cause like widespread fear, but again are ultimately still a, a very a, 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 you know a minuscule percentage of of, of overall gun death and shootings. Mm -hmm. Then I think that that makes the most sense. Obviously, we dip, you know the guns that are already out there. But that's a horse out of the barn situation. And, I, you know, I don't I don't well, I like have a I like both of those. I like both of your suggestions. I will say one other thing on the part of the media and these mass shootings. There's a responsibility to report that it happened. There is absolutely no responsibility to keep it on the news on loop day after day after day. That is becoming part of the problem. It's one of the reasons why I don't say the names of mass shooters. And I haven't for more than a decade. Read Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear. He's an expert in this area and he's been arguing for decades. Do not inadvertently or advertently glorify any mass shooter. And I do think it helps. It sends a message to the next one. You'll get nothing. No one's going to know your name. No one's going to give to anything about you. Um, and I don't know. I just think the, the media can play a role in being 
more helpful in stopping some of it, not all of it, sadly. Guys, thank you so much. I learned a lot and I really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for having me. Me too. Really, yeah, yeah really great. appreciate it. See you later, Stephen. See you, Mike. Uh, okay, so don't forget to tune into the show tomorrow because we're going to have more on the latest breaking news. Justice Breyer retiring later this year. Uh, that and we'll have Matt Walsh. Very excited to have Matt Walsh back on the show. In the meantime, download the show as a podcast on Apple, Pandora, Spotify, or Stitcher. Leave me a comment on the Apple comments if you would. Download at youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly. You can subscribe. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 